This is an ABC podcast. Still kind of dark foreboding in that, I feel. Although at the end it kind of brightens up. So maybe there is some optimism about the future. Which probably tells you that I had nothing to do with choosing that particular thing. <laughs> Welcome to the Minefield. Uh, this is a program about, about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Lead Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my very optimistic co-host. Um, Scott, I, get, I feel like I'm saying this quite a lot at the moment, but this is another one of those shows I've been waiting to do for a while. It's true. And then yeah, the moment right. sort of has been thrust upon us, particularly with all the debate. We're looking at, at vaccination and incentives to have people vaccinated or to get vaccinated Mm. and the ethical questions that surround that today. That's the broad way I would paint it. And we were always going to do the show. But then, of course, there was an outbreak in Melbourne and Melbourne went into lockdown and all the pressure came on the vaccine rollout, the question of vaccine hesitancy and all those sorts of related questions. And then the lockdown was extended. And so here we are um, talking about this in a kind of charged environment, which was perhaps not how we originally intended it, but might be a better way to help us discuss it, actually. Probably. And unsurprisingly, one of the things that has accompanied this fourth... Is this the... This is Melbourne's fourth lockdown, Yeah, right? I feel like this months? is being overstated, by the way. Yeah. Well, no, no, overstated is not the right word. I feel like it's the wrong way to describe it. Because, well, Brisbane's had three, right? Yeah. And Perth's had three. That doesn't capture at all the difference in the experiences between Melbourne yeah. and these other cities. I think because in Melbourne's case, you had that massive lockdown... And then the last, the latest lockdown hasn't felt like a circuit breaker. It's mm. felt like trying to contain an outbreak. So yes. actually Melbourne's had three lockdowns that feel qualitatively different to the ones that have been experienced in other states. Mm. Anyway, I digress. Maybe I'm revealing my geographical bias here. <laughs> no, you are, but you're perfectly entitled to do so. And I think, I mean, you know, Brisbane's lockdowns, they, they've, been, they've been pretty soft. They haven't been... I mean, there's been nothing like the despondency. I haven't seen anything like the despair uh, that I heard repeatedly from friends and loved ones uh, in in Melbourne. I think there's there's something interesting about that as well. But I, I guess unsurprisingly, if you want to call it your third, your four and a half, or even qualitatively speaking, your sixth lockdown, <laughs> um, unsurprisingly, this has brought about, how shall we put it, Waleed, a kind of resurgence of interest in being vaccinated. <laughs> I mean, once once everything kind of really got back underway and an outbreak seemed to be on the horizon, we saw the numbers of people seeking vaccination double in both Queensland and Melbourne. Uh, Queensland, far fewer people. Melbourne, far more people. So the doubling really was significant. Uh, in New South Wales, uh, we didn't exactly see a doubling, but we saw a significant rise. And I think it's it's just interesting, the story of vaccination in Australia... This time around, I mean, Australia has an unusual history with vaccination. Um, There are unusual and unusually entrenched pockets of vaccine hesitancy. And yet there's nothing like the kind of, I I could only describe it as vaccine defiance that there is in places like the United States, which on so many fronts is just so unusual, so unlike the rest of the world that it almost deserves not even to be mentioned. But that idea that the vaccine might be good for me, but I'll be damned if I'm going to let you tell me I need to have one. Mm. I mean, just that kind of quasi-libertarian defiance in the face of anything that looks like government incentive, much less government coercion. There's something about that that I just find 
obscene, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe why it's obscene. Well, it's very, further, it's very un-Australian you know, because Australia, as the modern nation state, only exists with government. Yeah. So it's yeah. A, John Hurst made this point brilliantly, and we we'll won't go into it now. But government involvement in Australian lives is a very long tradition that we're quite happy mm. to accept. Mm. And there's nothing like the fear of tyrannical rule that there is, but neither is there the kind of heroic valorization of rebellion from the bottom up yeah, here that there right. is elsewhere. And, you know, thank God for that. Well, the internet's I'm, doing a job at trying to <laughs> introduce it. But, yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that, that's true, which I've always found. I've always found the formations of trans-Pacific uh, alliances or meetings of political or ideological minds between here and the Americas. I've, I've always found that very, very, very unusual. Mm. Maybe there's a little bit more in common between Australia and Canada, but certainly almost nothing in common mm. between Australian cultural life and the United States, which makes me feel unusual here on all sorts of different, different <laughs> levels. <laughs> no, you'd be unusual anyway, though. You know that. I know. I, I, do, I do feel that <laughs> daily. But, but look, let's just say that one of the things, one of the paradoxes, one of the tragedies, I don't know how you want to describe it, one of the unusual things about the Australian experience of the COVID vaccine vaccine is that it became, the vaccines became available and news of government rollout and government, let's just call them at this stage, aspirations, began to be announced at a time when Australia was remarkably unbothered by high levels of coronavirus cases mm. and by almost no cases of unknown transmission. And then shortly after that, you had the particular um, vaccine that the government had thrown its lot in with, the AstraZeneca vaccine, mired in a degree of hesitancy worldwide due to the reporting of blood clots that well, seemed to be... had supply concerns and then you had the blood clot concerns. You had supply yeah. concerns, then blood clot concerns, which, which kind of ground everything to a halt and it seemed to – so my, my reading of the last few months is what began as a broad condition of relative apathy then got compounded by a state of relative suspicion. In other words, if there's a problem with the vaccine that is being offered, I think I'd prefer to wait for a better option to come along further down the road. There's no mm. real pressing need for me to test my luck this time around. So that apathy then got compounded by a degree of skepticism, which then fed into a, well, what's the point? Um, you know, I'm not I, necessarily I opposed to it. I would call it complacency. Okay. Yeah. Do you think I'm wrong? Go on. Well, no, I don't. Sorry, I I don't think I I don't think you're as such wrong, but I would say that certainly from this side of the continent, I don't know a lot of people who are actively complacent in the sense that, uh, you know, the vaccine will come. I'll just get it when it's available. I certainly see far less absolute rejection of or really committed. Um, hostility towards the vaccines that are on offer. No, no, it's more open hostility wouldn't be complacent. That would be a committed no, position. No. <laughs> You're right. I guess what I, what I mean is those who I know and a lot of my acquaintances because of my family are involved in sort of healthcare professions, there is a degree of eye rolling about the occurrence of blood clots. In other words, the risk that's involved in taking the vaccine is so vanishingly small 
compared to the risk that's involved in allowing oneself to be exposed to the coronavirus, that why would you not do it? And yet, and yet alongside that is a kind of, well, I'm not sure if it's dangerous. It might be dangerous. There's no pressing need. Therefore, I think I'll just wait simply to be safe. Um, And that then leads us to the position where for a great many people, uh, vaccination simply hasn't been one of the priorities. So do you want me to talk about complacency or should we get yes, straight please. to the question no. of incentives? No, no, go. I'm, I'm interested to what you well, say well, about I think the way you've articulated it illustrates why it is a complacency, right? Because I spoke to a lot of people who were not anti-vaccine at all. They were like, I'll get it. But were also saying, I'd just rather wait because mm-hmm. I'm hearing things. I think it would be better. I don't need to get it now. In other words, I think they were making a risk assessment in their minds that said, The risk of rushing ahead with getting vaccinated, even if that risk is vanishingly small, I'm comparing to a risk of a zero transmission environment with Mm. COVID. So in in fact, the whole blood clot thing has only really been a story here because of the lack of community transmission. Remember when the government made that decision that Pfizer was the preferred, or the mRNA vaccines generally, I suppose, were the preferred vaccine for people under 50 that wasn't because it's the blood clot issue was so much worse for younger people. It's that their risk of COVID was younger. So the risk assessment changed, right? Mm. The, in a low or zero community transmission environment, taking a vaccine that had this very, very small risk was nonetheless enough of a risk to change the calculation so that it was better just to get the other vaccine. And if that meant you had to wait a bit to get it, then we'll do that. That's the risk assessment. There's zero of that in the United Kingdom because the United Kingdom's lost, what is it, 160,000 people or whatever it is? Yeah, that's right. So the whole risk assessment is a completely different thing. So what I'm saying is the vaccine hesitancy, it's been called, or whatever, the delays in vaccine, in vaccination, part of them are supply, part of them are rollout, logistical, all that sort of stuff. But as far as people not rushing to get vaccinated themselves is concerned, part of that is based on an assessment of the risk of them getting infected with COVID or there being an outbreak in the first place. Yeah. Right? And that is why there's a level of complacency because they are assessing that risk as effectively zero. When it wasn't really, it was just hard to imagine that it was more than zero. Right? Mm. That's, Mm. That's what I mean by the complacency. Okay. And, and sorry, and, and it cannot be a coincidence that all the countries that have handled the pandemic best have handled the vaccine rollout worst. Can it? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. New Zealand have no. done it poorly. Taiwan haven't done it yeah. well. Yeah. There's got to be a correlation. And who's done it really, really well? Well, the United States and the UK. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why have they done it really well? I, I'm talking about countries that are actually, off, so I'm not talking about the Seychelles or something like that, where it's such a small population that it's a, a different, but you can't really compare it. These are massive logistical exercises that they have pulled off largely because they were desperate. Yeah. So it's yeah. a lack of desperation, which yeah, then look, leads us to the question of incentives, know. I think. Can we just broach one further thing, though, before we get to incentives? Because I find sure. incentives so incredibly fascinating on this particular front. Um, I, am, I am curious, though, Waleed, what is your reading of the decision that was made not just by Australia, but by, I mean, Germany, for instance, to suspend or to pause its reliance on the AstraZeneca vaccine and on the media's reporting of that. Because I, I guess it, 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 it struck me that the media's reporting of the occurrences of blood clots, maybe related to, maybe not, 
took place in an environment that was both maybe tilting towards maybe not active distrust, but there was enough maybe uncertainty that distrust could very easily be cultivated. It seemed to me that the decision then on the part of a number of national governments to suspend uh, its reliance on, even if just temporarily, was a massive and though risky, it was a much needed demonstration of good faith uh, on the part of governments towards their populations in order to say, we are not rushing this forward heedlessly of other concerns. Mm -hmm. It was a desperate attempt to try to hold fast to those bonds of trust that exist between a people and the government in order to try to say, we are not rushing this in order to get the economy back on track, in order to sort of maximize the efficiency of, the, of this particular plan or to maximize the take up of the rollout. We really do take concern seriously. In other words, while it may not have ultimately been necessary, it was one of those proximate or, or, or intermediate decisions that was necessary to try to cultivate an environment of trust within which that trust could then be capitalized on further down the track. Yeah, and so I can completely see why um, authorities, the government, and then even the media would emphasize the risk in that way. Because, but, but I think in some ways, and I'm saying this with hindsight, so I don't mean this as a criticism. I don't, I'm not saying I would have done it better, right? But... I think in hindsight, a lot about the rollout and the marketing campaign has been geared towards those who were most sceptical of the yeah. vaccine. Do you rather, think too geared? Too yeah, geared. yeah, in hindsight, okay. I would say yes, right? Interesting. Rather than those who are actually quite amenable to getting it but are being sluggish ah. about it, right? Interesting. Now, that, that by now, the hang way... On, hang, hang on, Wally. Does that mean then, does that mean that there is the paradoxical possibility that by addressing vaccine hesitancy in such a thoroughgoing way, it may well have cultivated the possibility of increased levels of suspicion or even distrust than had a more matter-of-fact, just-the-facts, ma'am. No, I think, I think it has been too just-the-facts, ma'am. I, I think a more effective advertising campaign would have played on fear. Oh, wow. Yeah. It would have, said, it would have said, do you want to go back to this? Here, here is the door that doesn't have vaccination on it. This is what that world looks like, and this is what that world looks like. You go choose. That now, you know, an advertising exec would do that better than I just did. But I think that my mind be... is going back to the AIDS campaigns. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> no, but that's right. So I, it's interesting because I've heard a few advertising people talk about this, and they say, for example, New Zealand's ad didn't work. New Zealand's ad is very funny, um, very Kiwi, right? But yeah. it didn't work because it was too funny. Whereas those sort of ads that have more levity do work in a place like the UK or the US because that levity is the thing they've been missing, right? So they get attracted to that and it inspires them. But like in a country... it's been too dour. It's, it's, it's been, been so bleak. dark, yeah. Ah. Whereas a place like the UK... Sorry, Australia or New Zealand actually hasn't been dark. I mean, you know, and I say that with the greatest respect to people who have suffered tragedies along the way and lost jobs and so on. But in, in comparative terms, life here has been pretty great compared to most places on the planet through the pandemic. And so because of that, we need to be scared and shocked into action because we haven't had that experience already to draw on. Um, this is not my idea. I'm drawing on the expertise of advertising people who 
have said that. And, I, and I'm persuaded by that. I think that's actually hmm. probably right. But anyway, well, you can leave all that to one side. It may well be that in the long run, by pitching this at people who are most sceptical or hesitant about the vaccine, in the long run, you get more vaccination. So maybe if we have this conversation in a year, we'll go, you know what, that worked out for the best. But as we sit hmm. here right now, I think too much has been geared towards people's concerns about the vaccine rather than inspiring wow. them to understand the urgency of it. And part of that might be that the government didn't have urgency on its own. So it never really felt that urgency and has gone the other way. But I don't take a, a malevolent view of the government's slowly, slowly approach here. I can understand the imperative that might have, they might have been trying to serve there. Um, I just, in hindsight, would say I don't think it was the right imperative. Okay. So part of what you're saying, if I'm reading you right, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that some of the media's reporting – I would regard it as being bordering on sensationalist. Okay, oh, yeah, I forgot to address the media and side of it. tipping yeah. over maybe even into being profoundly unethical. The paradox of what you're saying, however, is that while I might regard some of the media's reporting as being profoundly unethical and dangerous in a, from a public health perspective, that maybe the sensationalism itself could have been, what are we going to say, used for a slightly better purpose? So to some extent, what we needed was not less sensationalism and more cool, calm heads and cool, calm public information. Maybe we needed a little bit more. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that unless I knew exactly okay. what sort of sensationalism you had in mind. But as a rule, I don't think media sensationalism is good for okay. much. <laughs> but I would say, so I've got friends in the UK who are Australian but living in the UK. And one of the things they've found really interesting is that we report in the Australian media blood clot occurrences. Mm. That just does not get reported in the UK. Yeah. Now, part of that, I suspect, is the risk profile, right? For the same reason that they didn't slow down their vaccine rollout because of the blood clot issue, really, um, the media doesn't talk about it because it's not germane. Mm. Not when you've got mm. that much COVID, right? And by the way, I note that British scientists have started warning that they're seeing the early signs of a third wave, even with the level of vaccination they have, yeah. right? So mm. the situation is not a great situation. And for that reason, mm. the meaning of the whole blood clot issue was just negligible. Whereas here, I go back to the risk, it's relative risk, right? Without community transmission happening right across the country, really, for long periods of time, and Victoria getting to nearly 90 days before this outbreak... The, the blood clot issue was kind of the only issue, really. <laughs> like, mm. And so it attracted attention. So I'm not yeah, sure see, this paradoxical is paradoxical. Okay, okay. But yeah, well, I, I think I partly disagree with that. But it is, I mean, one of the many reasons I love this country is that gun-related deaths here are still top-of-the-page news. And if that ever changes, my, my heart would be broken. Um, there are simply far too many in places like the U.S. for them to really register unless the casualties sort of mount up coming close to the tens or even the dozens. So I, I mean, you, you're right. When, when the occurrences of problem or of tragedy or of trauma are relatively few and far between, it means that when they do, then they sort of demand a degree of either urgency or quote-unquote sensation, then maybe mm. they wouldn't otherwise. I, I just think the media didn't fully register the depth of its own moral responsibilities in being somewhat more prudent, prudential, rather than simply being precautionary in the way that, that it reported some of these occurrences. That might be right. Um, I'm a little worried that we haven't actually broached the question of incentives. Yeah, we're going to use our guest to do that. <laughs> right. I, I thought we were meant <laughs> yeah, to set up that topic yeah, before the guest came up. 
Right. Set up, schmet up. Sorry, Marco, you've got a lot of work to do. Um, <laughs> this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can also catch the podcast anytime that you like. So on the ABC Listen app, you can do that. But you can also follow The Minefield as a podcast wherever you do such things, and then every week we should just pop into your feed and you should be able to listen to us. We have a guest, Scott. Yes, we do. Marco Rizzi is senior lecturer in the law school at the University of Western Australia. One of the reasons we wanted to have him on the show is because he's part of the research team involved in the Coronavax project at the University of Western Australia. Marco, sorry we didn't talk about incentives before bringing you to the show, but thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Uh, thanks for having me. I guess I just, you know, improvise. Yeah. In fact, Marco... Yeah. <laughs> If you could, if you could just do our job and set up the topic for us, that'd be great. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, look, that, that was that that stuff we actually haven't talked about in the entire sort of fourteen months that this has been going on. So I, I don't feel overly bad that we broached it. But but Marco, I'm really interested to hear about this project, the Coronavax project that you're involved with, because you have been commissioned to study quite specifically the whole question of incentives. Yes. So um, Coronavax is mostly funded by the, the WA, uh, Department of Health. Um, so it is a, a study that is focused principally on WA. It's led by uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Katie Athwell, who's a, a social scientist and she's a political scientist, sorry, and a leading uh, scholar in what we call mandatory vaccination. Uh, and basically, the idea of this project was at the time when vaccines still had not been approved, we started thinking, well, you know, discovering a vaccine is one thing, but rolling it out is, you know, it's an entirely different exercise. And back then, you know, <laughs> last year and a half seems like, you know, it's lasted, it has lasted a decade. But back then, the focus was really on, are we going to be able to discover a vaccine? Uh, now, now we have a number of vaccines uh, and, you know, it's been an incredible effort of uh, research and development. But, you know, the issue, as we as we suspected back then, has become uh, how do we roll it out? So we what we were trying to do was basically gather data to then inform government and allow the state government in particular to come up with uh, evidence based policy for the purpose of rolling out uh, these vaccines. And it's been a really interesting, so it's a huge team, uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team. So I'm, you know, I'm the lawyer in the team, but there's uh, social scientists, uh, people who work on policy, communication, doctors, pharmacists. So you, I know that in this episode, you're interested in incentives, and that is definitely something we have been looking at. And the first thing that I would, you know, given the nature of this show might uh, spark some debate is that I suspect what you refer to as incentives or, you know, privileges of people who decide to have a vaccine, should they have some privileges in the way in which they, they go about their lives? I think we would call it a mandate. So a mandatory, a form of mandatory vaccination. And we have been studying quite extensively the way in which the WA population across demographics response to the notion of mandatory vaccines. And the interesting thing is uh, that there is broad, once people understand what a mandate is and what mandatory vaccination is, there's actually a broad level of support. So I don't know if this is an orthodox way of doing this, but if I were to ask you, what do you understand 
mandatory vaccination to be? What would you say? I would define it as being required by law to do it. So I know what Mm. you're saying, that you can call it mandatory if you're using heavy incentives or perhaps even the removal of certain rights. But that's not what I have in my mind when you say that phrase. No, me neither. And in fact, if we were to make up a kind of taxonomy of Mm -hmm. soft and and hard incentives, I would say that there would be sort of uh, something like an active disincentive to not being vaccinated. So that might be something uh, either it's rendered illegal or very, very significant aspects of one's participation in the life of a society is being taken away. This would be like the no jab, no pay, no jab, no play, something like that. Then you would have the active provision of privileges. So uh, unless you're vaccinated, you can't travel. If you are vaccinated, you can go to restaurants, you can attend sports venues. Uh, And then there would, I guess there would be the smaller sequence of more incidental incentives. So, for instance, in the state of Ohio in the United States, uh, there are $5 million prizes as part of a state lottery uh, that if you are vaccinated, you, your name gets thrown into the, into the hopper. Krispy Kreme donuts in the United States are offering a free donut for a week or a day for the next five years or something. Other places are giving Hang free... Hang on, that's worse than not being vaccinated for you. I know. <laughs> so so, so you, have, you have either the removal of certain privileges that are yours by, by rights of being members of a political community. There's the provision of privileges uh, that would in ordinary times be available, but maybe are being conferred precisely as kind of discretionary privileges, um, you know, so special little things that you can do. And then there would be the whole panoply of smaller gifts right up to cash payments, say, that are on offer. That, that, that for me would be, the, would be the range of possible incentives. And I guess only if it's covered by law, for me, would it be mandatory. And Marco, I would say that each of these belongs in a different ethical category, although they attract different ethical. So for example, the idea of get vaccinated, you get a free beer or you get entry into a lottery or whatever, leaving aside ethical objections you might have about alcohol and lotteries. But um, (laughs) that that class of incentive, I think, invites far fewer ethical objections than one that says, if you're vaccinated, you enjoy certain rights that others don't. And that again, invites fewer ethical objections than one that says it's a crime for you not to be vaccinated. Yeah, uh, can so, I just sorry, sorry, Marco, just before you jump in, I would also say that cash payments are of a completely different ethical category that I think are uh, among all of those almost uniquely problematic. So the, the last examples that you that you brought and yeah, the, the Ohio lottery is an interesting one. So these are, you know, in policy terms, you'd call them nudges. So you try to nudge people towards, uh, you know, doing the vaccine. So, for instance, uh, we've seen that with flu shots, there's employers who give vouchers and that is considered a nudge because, you know, we still have to pay 20 bucks to get the flu shot. So, you know, I give you a voucher. That's a nudge. I try to make you do it. So it's your choice. But, you know, I, I incentivize that choice. Then there's, you know, the no job, no pay, no job, no play. Those are certain. It's a different level. So that's kind of, as, as you say, you restrict access to certain services or to certain premises. So the interesting thing is that when you ask people, so these are still preliminary results, but the interesting thing is that there is about one third of people who say, I'm completely, I completely agree with mandatory vaccination, full stop. Uh, and then there's about a third that is like, mm, no, I don't really like the idea. But then when you start breaking it down, so you ask questions such as, 
Should it be mandatory to be vaccinated in order to travel internationally? Should it be mandatory to be vaccinated to uh, participate to a public event with more than a certain number of people, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, the vast majority of people agree. So um, th there is an interesting contradiction in a way. So we're not really keen to talk about something being mandatory, but then we're, you know, there seems to be a willingness to effectively treat it as mandatory for the purpose of, you know, going about their daily lives. And I am not sure, and here, you know, I'm not really talking as a, as a lawyer, but as, you know, someone, and it's on a personal level, not, uh, that doesn't reflect the views of the team necessarily, but I'm not entirely sure that, I, that I'm comfortable with calling these a privilege, uh, calling these privileges, uh, the ability to travel, the ability to go to a concert, uh, I mean, these are um, fundamental aspects of, you know, our, our, our daily life that have been, you know, severely disrupted. And um, speaking from the perspective of someone who has not seen his family for a very long time now, my family is in Italy, Italy and France, and it is unclear when that will become possible again. I think that there, there is an obvious you know, trade-off between a public health necessity and uh, individual preferences. And at this point in time, we have made as a society such sacrifices collectively that I'm not persuaded that it is correct to look at the question of vaccines as one of individual privileges. It is rather a question of, you know, collect achieving a collective goal. So, in that sense, I think that creating a system in which, uh, you know, with obvious, with, with safeguards, safeguards against discrimination, safeguards against, for example, abuses where you, you need to provide exemptions for people who have medical conditions, but provided that you, you craft it carefully, I think that there is scope to create a system where vaccination is effectively uh, a requirement because we in Australia and I if I can go back to what you guys were saying earlier about complacency there is one aspect of that complacency that I don't think has been fully unpacked which is we're content with this idea of being here with close borders and with people safe inside mm. but I think the reality is we need the world the rest of the world and in many ways we need the rest of the world a lot more than the rest of the world needs us so you look at you know healthcare facilities being understaffed because there is insufficient turnover of international staff you look at my industry which has been completely ravaged by covid-19 you know we need international students so we need to to burst out of this bubble and if the vaccine is the key, well, I think that becomes a public policy priority to try and do that. Hmm. So my responses to that sort of analysis, I think are to say that we, I would come from a completely different angle on it. So, for example, if we go through the taxonomy we outlined before, the idea of giving people gifts, essentially, for getting vaccinated, I just don't have a problem with. I see that as perfectly fine. Sorry, as, as such, Willie, like no from free donuts to cash? Well, we can have an argument about the, the nature of the gift. I'm just talking about the concept of the gift. Okay, right? all right. I, I don't really see that as a problem, right? It, to me, it lives in the same sort of category, although I, I understand the analogy is not perfect, as people being able to get sausages when they vote. It's, it's like, here's a little perk for doing something that we think is a good thing to do. 
But if you don't do it, you're not being punished or anything like that. Um, when it comes to different levels of rights, now you've objected to the term privileges. For me, once you don't call them privileges, that actually makes the ethical questions that surround it even more difficult. Because if they're not privileges, then if they're just the normal enjoyment of life, then denying that to someone isn't even the denial of a privilege now. It's a form of social excommunication, which actually makes it even more ethically heavy to me. So when you have that sort of a thing, I begin to worry. And then I have a real problem with criminalisation or anything like that, which I gather is not really where, where we're focused here. I, I just wonder whether or not that we're looking at it through the wrong looking glass. So for example, I know there are some states in the United States that in trying to deal with people who don't get vaccinated, instead of mandating it or taking away certain rights or privileges or having a, you know, a differential landscape of rights attaching to different citizens based on um, whether they're vaccinated or not. Instead of that, what they do is they have an opt-out system that just requires quite burdensome paperwork. And so the only people who are really going to go through that are the people who really, really don't want to get vaccinated. But other than that, people confronted with that question of, am I going to refuse to get vaccinated or not, they're more likely to get vaccinated because a lot of people who don't just don't because they haven't got around to it or they've forgotten to get their kids up to date with their jabs or or whatever it is. And I feel more comfortable. Now, I, I can understand we're in a slightly different context with the pandemic, but I feel more comfortable with that kind of approach because I think once you start talking about differential rights, all sorts of complicated ethical problems sort of hove into view. Um, you end up with two or multi-tiered societies. Access to vaccine issues become really important. What does it mean for people from, say, non-English-speaking backgrounds who are receiving different sorts of information and statistically are less likely to va- get vaccinated for a whole complex of factors, not all of which are in their control? Um, do we create a world where ultimately the wealthy are free to travel everywhere while the poor are not? What happens when we expand this logic all over the globe so that wealthier countries who can procure and roll out a vaccine they achieve a certain level of freedom that other poorer countries don't and then couldn't be bothered actually fixing it up on a global scale because their lives are back to normal and everything's right. I just think it's fraught and I just think there's a, there have got to be better ways of doing it that don't create differential enjoyment of rights as the mechanism. Like why should that be the mechanism that leads right. us to the promised land? It's, it's, it is fraught and there is no doubt about it. I think I think one of the... So there's mo- there's several levels of the problem has has several levels. So one of them is, I think in Australia we have a slightly and you guys touched upon this in your previous discussion. Uh, we have a perception of this pandemic that is very peculiar, and it is a perception. You know, nowhere else in the world do you have headlines because there's five new cases. You know, there's five new cases of coronavirus here. There's six new cases the other day, one case of blood cloth, etc. So the rest of the world is just to give, you know, by comparison, uh, was looking at the statistics in Italy. Oh, we're going back to normal. We only had about 1,500 cases yesterday. 
there's only about just over 100 deaths. So we're doing good. So that's the, the scale, right, of the, the proportions are completely different. And but the cost that, we, that we're paying is, is this effectively complete isolation. We're we have insulated ourselves uh, with this bubble in, with New Zealand, where I am at the moment. So we've, we've isolated ourself, uh, ourselves from the rest of the world. Now, the question is, I think there's several options and we need to be clear about what, what choices we make. And so far, the choice in Australia has been minimizing uh, the epidemic, the, minimizing the outbreaks. And in fact, states have actually gone more for eradication almost than, than minimization. So if that's the policy choice, then something's got to give. And what's, we've been content, we've been happy that, you know, in giving up our, you know, rights and our ability to, uh, to be mobile. So that's one possibility. We just we just keep it we just keep it this way, and we hope that the government fixes uh, the quarantine system because eventually there will be a variant that is contagious enough that it will just you know break out of it, and we're not going to be able to contain it. So we hope that that's one possibility. Another possibility is, and you know, there's been a lot of there's a lot of data from epidemiologists suggesting we need to vaccinate as many people as we can now because if we you know are successful in rolling out a vaccine now, we may be able to contain this. But the more we wait, the more there will be variants that might eventually um, not be covered by the vaccines that we have. So I think that we're in a position at the moment in which the normal ethical calculus that you would make, you know, in, in balancing out collective needs and individual rights and is, is, is at a stage in it's unprecedented in, in, at least in people like me in, in my lifetime. So I'm in my late thirties. There has never been a, a situation like this before. So, and I think it is important that we look at it through these lenses. Now, and when we do, then yes, I completely agree that whatever design we, whatever we designed needs to cater for, you know, linguistic minorities, lower and socioeconomic background, rural communities, like it has to be designed, and which is why I firmly believe, and again, this is my personal belief, it doesn't necessarily reflect the views of the, the team, but I'm convinced that it has to come from government, it has to be a public scheme. Because there's been a lot of talk also about, for example, letting businesses and employers, uh, you know, uh, create their own form of uh, privileges or rather mandates. Mm, you can't so work you here can't, if you don't get vaccinated. You can't work here if you don't get vaccinated, or you can't uh, you can't get into my plane if you don't get vaccinated. That was Qantas' CEO who he came in early with that type of comment. Now I, that's where I'm really uncomfortable. So if we let the private sector do that, then really we risk creating um, you know pockets of, of privileges, uh, pockets of exclusion. So it has to be something where there is public accountability. But I, I do think that the calculus at this particular point in time has to be, you know, with guarantees, because of course we, we are a liberal democracy and we really, and we cherish that, with guarantees for, uh, you know, rights of minorities and also particularly rights of the people with health conditions that would, be, that they would not be able to get the vaccine. But we have to, I think, at this point in time, uh, look at, 
what to collect what, what we need collectively and collectively if the goal is minimizing the outbreak and trying to minimize the impact of covid uh, our two options are we stay as we are secluded or uh, we need this rollout to happen faster if you just joined us, that is the voice of Marco Rizzi, who is Senior Lecturer at the Law School at the University of Western Australia, although he's in New Zealand at the moment as he speaks to us. He hasn't told us how he's pulled that little trick, but um, thank God for the bubble, I suppose. Um, the show that you're listening to is The Minefield. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I've got a lot I could pick up there, Scott, but I imagine you've got a million things you want to pick up. So what do you want to say? Oh, yeah. A million and, and a few. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I, I mean, Marco, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really interested to hear this. But I guess for my sake, can we get a little bit of clarity, though, on the actual vaccine situation in which we find ourselves? Because it, it seems to me that incentives or uh, higher level privileges of access or of ability to travel, however we want to sort of define that, whatever term we want to assign to it. Um, even if we want to debate the ethical merits of incentives, and I do think there are real concerns about certain incentives, as I flagged already, that would make a certain amount of sense if we had massive amounts of vaccine available. We had far too little uptake either due to apathy or to outright hostility. And we just need to come up with something that's going to push people to make a decision one way or the other, or maybe give them, as you suggested before, a little nudge into deciding they want to do something they don't necessarily feel hostile towards, but maybe they feel kind of neutral about. Um, but it just strikes me that that's not the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment. It's not that there are loads and loads and loads of doses of the vaccine of a vaccine out there, and we simply need people to line up to get the jab. Um, we're also talking about the rollout in terms of who needs to be prioritized, about which age group needs to come first, about which vocations uh, should be receiving priority above others. Um, and then it strikes me that as soon as you have that kind of reticulated rollout, that kind of orderly progression from levels of risk and levels of, of vocational responsibility to those who find themselves further and further and further down, as soon as you assign certain incentives or certain privileges to those who are able to go first because of limits of vaccine availability, it seems to me that you're turning those privileges into something or, or those incentives into something very, very different. And that's the kind of thing, well, they'd used the term before, two-tier society, that can create certain forms of either resentment, of intersocietal hostility or envy, right up to the point where people can feel the need to want to barge in uh, of uh, the, or the otherwise orderly or whatever progression of the line in order to try to get their dose first. So I can, can well, or it can me... harden ideological positions against vaccines because it's yes, like, well, exactly. why, why would they be trying to force me to do this? Yes, we... yes, precisely. No, look, so let, let me be very clear. That That's a really good point. So short of certain specific categories, so, you know, the, you may want to look into making it mandatory for, say, aged care workers for specific reasons. Okay, that's, that's, one, that's one thing. But when we're talking about the general population, and I'm glad you raised 
this point because it allows me to clarify uh, my my thinking a bit more. Um, you cannot possibly create those type of like blanket, whether you want to call them incentives or mandatory or, or specific mandates. You can't possibly do that until you have reached the the final phase of the of the rollout. So if we look at the the if we look at the old, you know, uh, staggered approach that the government released in January, I mean, that particular strategy has kind of gone out the window mm. two or three times since then. But basically, until you get to the point in which you're actively vaccinating the balance of the adult population, leaving children aside for a moment, because that's an entirely different conversation, um, you, you can't you can't possibly you know create that type of system until you reach that point because it would be I, I think the problems are not just ethical there would be some kind of like active discrimination you would be putting you would be effectively yeah secluding people and create while you're creating the reason for them being excluded from certain activities with yourself because you know as the government if you don't have the doses then you can't tell people who want to be vaccinated, sorry, you can't get on a plane, sorry, you can't do this, you can't do that, when you are the one who is responsible for providing the dose. So I think it's important that it's, it, it goes both ways. And it's a, there is a duty on behalf of the government to provide the infrastructure and provide the doses. And then I think there, you know, there is what I would call a civic duty to get vaccinated in the present circumstance. So I, I would agree with you, uh, I think it was Scott who made the point, uh, you can't create blanket forms of you know, exclusions or mandates or incentives until you're able to deliver. So uh, that is, yes, that is absolutely correct in my view. It's, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's, it's not just an ethical, it is certainly ethical, but it would also cause some, there would be some legal issues there. <laughs> and, and, right. I imagine and, there would and be. Except, except, and I, I agree with all of that, but the one thing I would observe is it's not like vaccine uptake has been matching availability. Right? No. So, so even if you want to say the rollout hasn't been there, we're not at a level where we can say that, that privileges should be accorded or whatever, the fact that people haven't got to the level that is available says that some level of privileging would still be a mechanism that would be effective here. And so it could potentially revive the argument for it if you were minded to adopt that kind of argument. Now, as, I, as I've explained, I'm not minded to do that. But, but I could well see that you could mount that argument right now. If, if Scott Morrison came out tomorrow, I suppose it would have to be him rather than a state leader. If Scott Morrison came out tomorrow and said, we're now implementing a policy that says if you've been fully vaccinated, then you are not subject to any COVID restrictions in the way that everybody else is, then he would have an argument, provided you're in a category that's eligible at the moment. So you put that caveat on it. So mm. 40 and above in New South Wales, Victoria, for example, whatever it is. If he put that caveat on it and made that declaration, why couldn't you argue that that's a perfectly valid thing to say given that there hasn't been uptake of what's available. As I say, so, I don't like that argument. But, but if you're prepared to like that principle, then I don't see why he couldn't do that. Well, I think because he, you know, so, so there's, there's two things to, to consider here. The first one is that in Australia, there is way more scope for governments to uh, go down a road, like, you know, an ethically dubious road, let's put it, uh, dubious road, like the one you suggest, 
there's a lot more scope to do that because the content of our our fundamental rights as you know, citizens or residents of Australia compared to places like you know Europe or even the United States uh, is a lot more limited, right? So this is a country where the government decided on public health grounds to criminalize the re-entry of its own citizen from India because you know uh, it was the right thing to do on public health grounds. Now, I thought that was absolutely atrocious. I've never heard mm. of a country criminalizing the re-entry of its own citizens. But well, it was although we should, we should be clear that that criminalization had actually been in place for the whole time of the travel ban, from what I understand. It just hadn't been emphasized, which is well, the remarkable was, thing. Well, yeah, it hadn't been. Like it was on the books. It, was, it had but, been. Yeah, there. but no, but no, there was never like a singling out one hot spot. Like okay, if you're coming back from this hot spot, you're in violation of the travel ban and as such, you know, you're liable to, you know, you can go to jail or you can be fined uh, 60 plus thousand, thousand dollars. So I think what was what was specific there, it was the identification of one particular place and uh, it, it, that was never done really in uh, with respect to, you know, any other country, even the United States when the outbreak was uh, particularly, uh, particularly bad or, or even the, or, or London and the UK. So the point that I'm trying to make is uh, in general, this is a, Australia is a place where government has significant powers to coerce citizens um, more than we would think, and certainly more than, you know, uh, continental European countries would have. Now, what you were suggesting that, you know, using this type of incentives, so saying, you know, you're free from all, you're free from all uh, restrictions if you get vaccinated today, uh, I think it's possible. And I think it would be difficult to challenge courts, you know, even, even when there has been challenge against COVID measures, courts have been very different to mm. uh, what the government has been doing so far, both uh, at federal and state level. I, I think that would be really bad. I think it would be a really bad idea because you, you are basically promising more than you can deliver. So, yes, it might be a key to ensure that people start you know, going get, and getting vaccinated now, even with the limited number of doses that we have. But the thing is, if at that point you reach the limit of the doses, uh, then you're, you have effectively created a pocket of privilege that is unchecked. So I think I'm, I'm very, I, th- I feel very strongly that the type of incentives or mandates that we're talking about, they should legitimately be put in place when the government is able to deliver broadly, so to the population at large, because otherwise the risks that you guys were suggesting, I think they're very much real, but I think think the ethical trade-off is acceptable when the opportunity is available to all. It is no longer acceptable when there is insufficient supply, because then it, you know, it's, then indeed it does become uh, difficult to justify why some people can have access to services and venues and why others don't. Um, we are running out of time, but I sort of can't help asking you this. What about, though, this idea of doing it in a, a less punitive way that wasn't attached to rights, but was more attached to administration and paperwork? So the, the, the idea of an opt-out. Hmm. Well, uh, I think the important, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily, you know, <laughs> I feel like I have given off the, the vibe of like, you know, sort of, uh, I want to punish people. 
<laughs> that, that's not really that. That's really not like in an ideal world uh, there would be none of this. Um, I, I think what's important is just to have evidence-based policy and, and, and evidence that suggests, you know, you have a goal, you have a clear goal that has to be realistic and it has to be clearly spelled out uh, from a governance perspective. And then you use instruments that are, that are effective and legitimate. So if we might look into this, but if, if there was strong evidence that an opt-out mechanism was going to be, you know, it, largely effective in the sense that it would guarantee uh, the level of uptakes that we need in order to, uh, you know, lose the restrictions, uh, then no, absolutely, that would be uh, possibly preferable in the sense that at, even just at the psychological level, even if it does the same thing, ultimately, it, it, it actually puts, I, I guess it gives agency back to the decision maker in the, the, you know, the individual who decides whether to get vaccinated or not. So I, I don't, yes, uh, I'm interested in the goal, the public health goal, and I'm interested in reaching that goal through, you know, legitimate and fair uh, instruments. So if the opt-out was to come out as, a, as an effective tool, uh, then yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting mm. that we don't even look at that though. Like that's not the reflex in Australia. We went straight to no jab, no pay. Right? That that's yeah. just that's just the way we. But go. that's path dependency in a way. You know, you use what you know. Uh, it's a bit like the entire response for COVID has been borders. Like that, that yeah. was effective at the beginning, and then you know, path dependency is a very strong thing in public policy. You just is there something we know? Yes. Does it work? Yeah, it kind of does. Okay, let's just, let's for, just that. Go for that. Well, Scott, Marco's done very well in setting up a sequel. Did you see how he did right. that? That's <laughs> right. It's true. Uh, it's an excellent technique, Marco. You've done extraordinary. Only the best guests are capable of doing that, so well done. Thank you very much for lending us your expertise today, though. It's been great to lean on you. Uh, thank you for having me. In a socially distanced way, of course. Marco Rizzi is Senior Lecturer in the Law School at the University of Western Australia. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Scott, we're at an end. We are indeed. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.